This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Hi there, Dr. Jen Lincoln here. I can't come to the phone right now, but we'll likely have an opening later on. Please leave me a message and I'll be at your cervix. I mean, <laughs> service in no time. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Let's Talk About Down There podcast, episode 10. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Lincoln. This week's episode, I'm answering a question today, not only as a doctor, but as a parent, as a mom. And that's because that's exactly what this caller asked me to do. So let's hear from Sarah, who wants to know not only my professional thoughts about using IUDs, aka intrauterine devices in teenagers, but also how I might approach this as a parent. Does letting my child or my teenager use an IUD or some other form of birth control give them the green light to have sex? Let's take a listen. Hi, Jen. My name is Sarah, and I was wondering about IUDs for females who are about to hit puberty, going into puberty, and the discourse that they're allowed to have with their parents about having an IUD inserted into them. And it should be known to parents that it's not a free pass for their kids, especially their daughters, knowing about STDs, that an IUD does not, that it's not a free pass for underage girls to have sex. It's to alleviate cramps and regulate hormones, mood swings, and a full week of bleeding. Again, not a free pass for unprotected sex. Do you support an effort towards any of the IUDs for young underage females to start regulating their hormones now, especially if they're involved in their in their physical activities and going up on their daily lives, administering themselves into puberty in a much different way than than their counterpart male students have to. Um, I just was wondering your thoughts about how a parent would approach the conversation with their daughter about that type of insertion. Okay, there are a few great questions in here, and I'm going to answer them for you today. But I first want to start out with acknowledging this, that I totally get why Sarah and probably a lot of other adults out there think this too. That talking to your kids or teens about birth control, sex, condoms, all that stuff means that you're like kind of giving them a stamp of approval to them having sex. Kind of like, well, they're just going to take from this conversation that my mom said having sex is okay because she showed me where to get condoms and how to use them. And so now I'm going to go have sex because my parents pretty much told me it's just going to happen. So I'm going to go do it. And I totally get that as a mom of two. I hear you. But I do want you to know that when I put on my professional hat, which I don't know, maybe it's a scrub cap or my professional white coat, I don't know, that I am 100% confident that this is not the case. And in fact, it's actually the opposite. Yes, you heard that correctly. When we talk about sex and birth control and consent and STI testing and HIV and all things reproductive health care, it actually makes it less likely that our kids will go out and have sex. And it's the exact opposite of them thinking it's a free pass to shacking up. What? That might sound completely unbelievable. But as the great LeVar Burton once said, but you don't have to take my word for it. 
And if you don't know what that reference is coming from, I'm so sad. And I hope that Reading Rainbow is not becoming irrelevant because that was like my favorite show as a kid. We're going off track. But anyway, Reading Rainbow and the Barber will always steer you in the correct direction. Okay, so this means that it's time we jump into class and get to the facts to support my claim. Oh, hold on. Wait, before we do that, I want to ask you two quiz questions and I'm going to answer them at the end of the episode. First one, what percentage do teens, who, by the way, are 25% of the sexually active population in this country, what percentage do they make up of all the new sexually transmitted infection cases in the United States? Do these 25% of sexually active people who are teenagers make up 10% of the new infections, 20% more? Take a guess and file that number away. Okay, the second quiz question I want you to answer. Are teenagers getting better sex education now compared to the 90s, or is it actually worse? So file your two choices away, and I'm going to answer those before the end of the episode. Okay, welcome to this week's Class is in Session, where we head up this week's Teachable Moment. Welcome to the health class you wish you had in high school. This week, I'm teaching you why making it harder for teens to access birth control and actually not talking to them about sex makes them more likely to have sex and do it unsafely when they do. That's right. We're talking about abstinence-only education, or what I like to call an example of how not to teach our kids. First things first, what is abstinence-only education? It has been called abstinence-only until marriage education or sexual risk avoidance, and it's basically when students are taught that abstinence is the only thing and the only way to avoid pregnancy and sex, and that's all they're told. Just don't do it. It teaches that abstinence is the expected standard of behavior for teens. Usually when kids get this kind of education, any information about the effectiveness of birth control or condoms or how not to get pregnant or get in any sexually transmitted infections are never discussed. And so programs can be abstinence only, or they might be something called abstinence only plus, which means that abstinence only is really stressed and really emphasized, but they might sprinkle in a little bit of education about birth control and condoms and that kind of thing. And then there's what we call comprehensive sex education, which talks about everything in a really detailed view, is very evidence-based, and understands that it's not just about sex, it's also about consent and body image and those kinds of things. But I want to dive into abstinence-only education because you might, as a parent especially, think that's the best thing for your children because you're telling them this is the only thing that 100% works. And I do want to say, I get that. And as an OBGYN, I always tell my patients, the only way for you to absolutely know you're not going to get pregnant or get gonorrhea or chlamydia is to not have sex. And when it comes to pregnancy, not have penis and vagina sex. So 100% I'm on board with that. And I agree with that. But the thing here is that I'm focusing on the kind of education where that's all they talk about. Okay. So the history of abstinence only education in the United States in the late nineties to early two thousands, that was really a big focus in our country. During this time, the United States spent about $2 billion, with a B, $2 billion on this kind of programming for students, which we have now found out is not only ineffective, but also stigmatizing. And really what they were spending this money on were programs that promoted abstinence until you were married. There was a lot of federal support for this kind of education, and it actually really peaked during the George W. Bush administration, when federal and state governments spent over $1.5 billion between 1998 and 2008 on this kind of education. What we have found is that this kind of education, not only does it not work, it actually really reinforces gender stereotypes and can be very exclusive to people who do not identify as cisgendered, heterosexual folks. So. When we got more data and we saw that these programs did not work, organizations and groups like the American Medical Association, 
the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Public Health Association, the American College of OBGYNs, all said, hey, these aren't working and we oppose government funding for these programs because they don't work and they don't give young people the tools they need to make good choices and stay safe when they do. So in 2010, there was a shift to what we call evidence-based interventions or EBI programs. This was during the Obama administration. And the goal here was really focusing on working to decrease teen pregnancy. And these programs required that any programs that were funded had to be based in scientific evidence, modeled after things like clinical trials and good data. Now, I'm not gonna dive into all of this here, but I can tell you while this was much better than abstinence-only education, it wasn't perfect because they were really focusing on programs that were still very much focused on disease and pregnancy prevention and not seeing the whole teen and talking about things like consent, body image, sexuality, those sorts of things. But honestly, it was a big improvement from abstinence-only education. So to answer your question that you're probably having right now, well, Dr. Jen, what do you mean they don't work? What about these abstinence-only education programs? What's going on? Are you sure they don't work? Yes, I am 100% sure. Multiple studies have shown that when kids are taught this kind of abstinence-only education, it does not delay the initiation of sexual intercourse. It does not decrease the number of people they eventually have sex with. And it doesn't make people who were having sex stop having sex and become a term that's called secondarily abstinent, meaning that since they've had this programming, now they're going to stop having sex. It doesn't work. And even more recently, a study in 2012, which was a study of a whole bunch of studies done by the CDC, looked at programs called comprehensive risk reduction programs, so ones that really cover everything, and compared it to abstinence-only programs. And they saw the same exact thing, that comprehensive risk reduction programs, ones that covered everything, they actually did lead to decreased number of sex partners, delayed initiation of sex, delayed frequency of sexual activity, and then when people did eventually have sex, that they used protection, which led to, you guessed it, a decreased number of pregnancies and sexually transmitted infections. And the opposite was true for abstinence-only education. And you want to know a fun fact? The top 10 states with the highest teen pregnancy rates? Yeah, they all emphasize abstinence. And in fact, five of them provide no sex education at all. The top three states when it comes to the highest rates of teen pregnancy, Mississippi, Arkansas, and Louisiana, they all emphasize abstinence in their sex education programming. And you would think if it worked, right, then then you wouldn't have these high rates. But this is a huge problem because these kids are not being given the information they need and they're experiencing harm because of it. And we know that states that don't emphasize abstinence have a lower rate of teen pregnancy than those that emphasize abstinence. So we're not saying not to discuss abstinence here. We're just saying that when we put a ton of time and money and classroom focus on just talking about abstinence, we are not arming our teenagers with the tools they need to stay safe. And that when we do talk about these things in a comprehensive way, they actually choose to not have sex. They make good choices. And then when they do have sex, they do it more safely. And another problem with abstinence-only education is that it really tends to reinforce these gender stereotypes. These programs often stigmatize homosexuality as this kind of unnatural behavior. They tend to be split into separate classrooms based on sex and gender, and they really reinforce gender stereotypes that females and girls are passive and receptive, and the boys are aggressive, and, and we have to watch out for them. It's really a sexual double standard. And we know that research has shown that this is harmful to teen sexual health. So my take-home message for this class, the U.S. actually has the highest teen pregnancy rate of any developed country. 
and access to complete and accurate education when it comes to pregnancy, STIs, HIV, reproductive sexual health information. It's actually been recognized worldwide as a basic human right. And when we withhold that information, that actually is coercive to our teenagers. It coerces them, it's not fair, it's not empowering them or educating them, and it doesn't work. With about 57% of high schoolers having sex by the time they graduate, don't you think we should talk about these things that help them rather than continue to stick our heads in the sand and just shout, oh, just don't do it, just don't have sex. As a parent and as a medical professional, I think we need to keep talking. Class dismissed. Okay, so now that you've heard all that, here's what I think we need. And I think that this will help Sarah understand when I answer her questions individually, why I am a huge fan of talking about these things and why I don't think having an IUD placed in your teenager means it's a free pass. So what we really need is really good sexual health education that doesn't just talk about pregnancy and STIs and all the scary things that can happen with sex, but it needs to be holistic. It needs to be inclusive of all youth, including those who don't just identify as straight, cis, heteronormative kids. We need to have federal funding that reaches everybody, that understands that a lot of things go into when somebody might choose to have sex, such as their sexual orientation, the amount of education they've gotten, where they are on the poverty scale. Sexual health education has to be inclusive and it has to be culturally appropriate, and it has to take into account the specific group of people you're talking about. Kids in San Francisco might need a very different lesson from kids in, I don't know, New York City or Detroit or in a rural place where they've been exposed to different things and they have different ideas of what's considered quote unquote normal during sex. It just means that you have to understand that different populations need different information. And what we really need is the understanding that just talking about sex doesn't mean that kids go have it. Just like talking about your daughter to get an IUD because of her terrible cramps to help with that doesn't mean she interprets it as a free pass to go have sex. Okay, so to answer Sarah's question very directly, are IUDs and birth control a free pass? No, and I hope I've made that clear. And if your teen wants one, I think that's actually awesome, considering only about 60% of sexually active teens who were using birth control at the time of having sex were using what we consider to be a highly effective method. So like the pill, the shot, or the IUD. And only 3% of them were using the IUD and another 3% were using the arm implant. So together, that's about 6% of teenagers using what we call LARC methods, which stands for long-acting reversible contraceptives. These are types of birth control that are super duper effective. But get this, a study showed that of teenagers who had an IUD placed, about 80% of them were still using them at one year. So that's actually a really excellent continuation rate. That means that a lot of people have these preconceived notions that Adolescents can't handle having an IUD placed, but for those that do, a huge percentage of them continue to use them. That means they enjoy them as a method of birth control, and that's awesome because they're over 99% effective at preventing pregnancy. Okay, let's go back to this question that Sarah asked about using them in young people. And I was wondering about IUDs for females who are about to hit puberty, going into puberty, so I do want to make it clear that I'm a huge fan of using hormonal birth control in teens who need it, whether it's for heavy periods, painful periods, and yes, for preventing pregnancy if they're sexually active. But as OBGYNs, we do recommend that you wait until they've had their first period, that you don't just kind of put them on it ahead of time. So I just wanted to clarify Sarah's question where she said they were about to hit puberty. 
they're totally in puberty if they've already had their period. So just want to make that clear that I do recommend waiting until they've had their first period. Let's jump to another question Sarah had. Do you support an effort toward any of the IUDs for young underage females to start regulating their hormones now, especially if they're involved in their in their physical activities and going up on their daily lives, administering themselves into puberty in a much different way than than their counterpart male students have to. So do I support their use in young women and young people with uteruses? Absolutely. And if you want to learn more, I have a recent episode that I just put out about IUDs, about so many reasons why I think IUDs rock. You can go ahead and we'll link that below in the show notes, but why we use them not just for birth control, but for treatment of other things like heavy bleeding, painful periods, all sorts of good stuff. And your specific question where you said growing up with exposure to hormones continuously, unlike males, I do want to clarify that IUDs specifically they have progesterone only. We're talking about that class of IUD, the progesterone only IUDs. Those are your Mirena, Skyla, Loletta, and Kylina. They release a very low amount of progesterone. And what that does is it helps to thin down the lining of the uterus. It may or may not suppress ovulation. That's not the main way that they work. But I want to clarify that it's a super low dose of progesterone. Almost none of it gets into your bloodstream. Most of it stays right in the uterus. And it's a way lower dose of progesterone than if you were cycling on your own. So I don't want you to think that because your adolescent is using an IUD, that they are somehow exposed to a high level of hormones and somehow that's different or dangerous than compared to what their male counterparts may be exposed to. Okay, before I answer Sarah's final question, let's get back to the two questions I asked you. So let's go to our first one. If you remember, I asked you what percentage of teenagers who are 25% of the sexually active population in this country make of all the new sexually transmitted infection cases in the U.S.? Do they account for 10% of the new infections, 20% or more? So here's the thing. They actually make up 50, 50% of the 20 million sexually transmitted infections that are contracted annually. So even though they're only 25% of the sexually active population, they account for 50% of new STIs. And one in four of the estimated 50,000 new HIV infections diagnosed each year happens in an adolescent. So I get it that we would love to say that all of our teenagers are abstinent until they're older and more mature and ready to handle the responsibilities that come with sex. If that's all we're giving them and arming them with and we're not protecting them, against their very high risk of getting an infection. And truly, education is best. Speaking of education, the second quiz question I asked was, are our teenagers getting better sex education now compared to the 1990s or worse? What do you think? Are you glass half full or glass half empty? Sadly, you should be glass half empty because adolescents were less likely to report getting sex education when they were surveyed in 2015 to 2019 than they were in 1995. And here are the numbers. So in 1995, 84% of adolescents reported that they had gotten instruction on birth control methods in school. But in 2015 to 2019, that number dropped to only 63% of teens reporting getting taught on this topic. So we've actually gotten worse and we've actually gone backwards. And it just doesn't make sense in this day and age when we have the data to support this kind of instruction. 
let me know how you did on your quiz questions. And hopefully now that you know this and you know this information, you can go ahead and tell your friends, hey, guess what? Talking about this sort of stuff, our teams need it and it will help them stay safer and we need to keep them safe. Okay, so let's focus on Sarah's last question, which I think is a really, really important one. I just was wondering your thoughts about how a parent would approach the conversation with their daughter about that type of insertion. So Sarah, I'm really glad that you asked this part of the question because I can give you all the medical information and and you can know all the numbers, but I think a lot of it, again, as a parent, it gets down to the nitty gritty of like, how do I do this? So how I would approach this conversation about IUDs and these kinds of conversations about sex and birth control is with honesty. I would make sure that my conversations are age appropriate. So the conversation you're going to have with a seven-year-old who might hear something or have a question about their body is very different than with a 12-year-old, which is different than a 16-year-old. And as a parent myself, I acknowledge that kids have different levels of maturity and understanding at different ages, and you do know your kid best. However, that's where honesty comes into play. And know that it's okay to feel uncomfortable or to say, I don't know. I'm not sure actually why this happens or or why that doesn't happen. I understand that not everybody themselves got the kind of education they needed or wish they had when they were in school. So how can you expect to teach your kid? The good news is that help is out there. And I'm not here to promote my book, but that's exactly why I did write my book called Let's Talk About Down There. And OBGYN answers all your burning questions without making you feel embarrassed for asking. And we'll have that link in the show notes. But it's a question and answer based book that's divided up into sections like periods and birth control and care down there. And it's just very easy to understand. It's illustrated. It's meant for a 16-year-old up to a 66-year-old. And what I love about my book and other books is that you can leave these out. And you can, your teenager can just pick them up and look at them when they feel comfortable. They may not want to read it there with you at bedtime, like you used to read to them, but having them out, whether it's on a bookshelf or giving it to them and saying, Hey, there's a bunch of good information in here. I'd love it if you take a look. And if you have questions, let me know, or you leave it in the bathroom, that kind of thing that tells them that you trust them to look into the information yourself. You are saying, it's okay. This is not secret. This is not something bad. And then they can come to you if they have questions. Another really great resource that I love is the Sex Positive Families website and book. Well, again, we'll have all these links in the show notes, but I love this website and this book particularly. It's written by a great person. Tons of age-appropriate content split up by different ages, different topics. I just think it's awesome. Other two websites that I love are Bedsider and Power to Decide's Find My Method website. These are all great too when it comes to talking about birth control. And don't forget that you have a partner in your corner. Enlist the help of your child's pediatrician. Now I happen to be married to a pediatrician as I've discussed in other episodes. And I know he's a really great one. He talks about these conversations with his patients all the time and he brings it up because he knows that he needs to. And I know that not all pediatricians tend to maybe feel as comfortable talking about sex and birth control as he might or as others, but know that that's part of their job. And if they're telling you, I don't talk about that or Don't talk to your kid about that. That means they're going to go have sex. Ooh, that's kind of a red flag. You can also have a visit with an OBGYN that introduces your teenager to them, but doesn't mean that they're going to have an exam or be prescribed birth control. In fact, the American College of OBGYN recommends that young people have their first exam with an OB between the ages of 13 to 15. 
Now raise your hand if you never had that. Like, yeah, I didn't either. But the goal of this is that they can help to transition that care from a pediatrician or just have somebody in their corner to talk about these things ahead of time as opposed to afterwards when they had unprotected sex and now they have to be treated with gonorrhea or worse yet, they are pregnant. So know that you can do that. And I do have a YouTube video on how to find the right OBGYN for you, what to expect at your first visit. Lots of great content there. So you can check that out. And I really want you to channel your own sex education when it comes to talking to your child. Do you remember it? Was it good? Was it terrible? (laughs) What worked? What didn't? What do you wish that you had been taught that you didn't have to find out on your own, potentially from terrible sources? Because I know it's so easy as a parent myself to just focus on, well, this is how it should be. And this is what I want for my kid. And, And you very quickly forget what it was like when you were a child or you were a teenager and remember those feelings and think, is that what you want for your teenager? Did it help that your education was mostly fear-based like mine was? Or did that lead to a lot of shame and having to undo things later on? Wouldn't it be great if your child or your teenager could skip over that? And truly trust the data, trust yourself and your child. Know that talking about these things does not mean that your child's going to have sex. And not just because I said that, (laughs) you don't take my word for it, but because we talked about the studies and I'll have those referenced in the show notes, we have good data to support this. Just like we teach our kids how to use a fire extinguisher, it doesn't mean we expect them to start fires. It's kind of the same thing here. So let's wrap up this week's episode with a segment of Clitterally, where I literally and clitterally review things that make me go, are you clitterally kidding me? Clitterally and literally, these numbers enrage me. And I think they're going to enrage you too. This is some fun dinner party conversation. I'm going to throw out numbers and it might really shock and surprise you. All right, 38. That's the number of states in the District of Columbia that mandate sex education and or HIV education. And if you're like me and you're like, what the heck do you mean, Dr. Jen? That number should be 50. Yeah, I agree, but only 38. 17 states require that program content be medically accurate when it comes to sex or HIV education. Yeah, that means 33 states don't. So they can teach your kids stuff but in 33 states, it doesn't have to be accurate. That blows my mind. I think that's like maybe the most infuriating number here. Only 20 states in the District of Columbia require provision of information on birth control. That means 30 states don't. 29 states require that abstinence be stressed. And remember, that's really focusing on abstinence and maybe only a little bit focusing on the other stuff like contraception and all that kind of thing. And we know that it doesn't work. Only 10 states and D.C. require inclusive content when it comes to sexual orientation. That means 40 states don't. So they can just talk about penis and vagina sex and really normalize that and leave the kids who don't identify as heterosexual or in the gender binary completely in the lurch. When you don't talk about stuff, you're making it very obvious that you're excluding people and you're saying this is what's normal. You're considered abnormal. And that's really harmful. In fact, here's another infuriating number. Six, six states require that only negative information be provided on homosexuality and or have a positive emphasis on heterosexuality. So in Alabama, Florida, Illinois, South Carolina, Texas, and Oklahoma, these states can tell your kids that being gay or not being heterosexual is negative and is somehow bad. Now that's really, really harmful, especially to young people who are still figuring themselves out. 
31 states don't require that sex education cover healthy relationships. When HIV education is taught, only 19 states require inclusion of information on condoms or contraception. I'm sorry, but how do you talk about HIV and not mention condoms in the same lesson? I don't understand that. 40 states do not require sex education to be culturally appropriate and unbiased against race, sex, and ethnicity. So that means that they don't have to personalize education to the people sitting in front of them and the communities in front of them. Not cool. So clearly, what does this mean in real life? Because I threw out a bunch of numbers that are, you know, mostly horrifying. Let's see what this actually means in a state. Let's look at Mississippi. If you're listening to this and you're from Mississippi, I am sorry, because this state is on the struggle bus of sexual health. Out of 1,000 female teenagers aged 15 to 29, 28 give birth every year. They are the worst. Mississippi is the worst state for teen pregnancy. They also rank the worst for rates of preterm birth, infant mortality. They have the highest number of new cases of gonorrhea and chlamydia. They have the highest number of deaths from firearms and the highest number of deaths from homicide. Now, you might say the last two were not relevant, Jen, so why are you bringing this up? I am bringing it up because it all exists together. Sexual health is not just in a vacuum. The people of Mississippi are struggling, especially the young people who are not getting the education they need. So here's specifically what you get in Mississippi when it comes to sex education. It actually is mandated. I was very surprised when I looked this up. But, and I quote, localities may include topics such as contraception or STIs only with permission from the State Department of Education. So they actually have to like go get express permission. And as you can imagine, in a state like Mississippi that tends to be very conservative, school boards and departments of education might not be as progressive and with it when it comes to comprehensive sex education as it may be in other states. Oh, here's a fun fact for Mississippi, that sex education, that if they get permission to give it, it's not mandated to be medically accurate. Oh, and it also has to be abstinence only or abstinence plus education, which I've already described what that is. And if it is abstinence only or abstinence plus, they can't talk about abortion. That's cool. So you can kind of talk about sex ed, maybe if you get it approved, but you have to talk only about abstinence, or maybe you can kind of mention some birth control, but you can't talk about what might happen if you do get pregnant. And knowing that abortion is healthcare, if you're not telling young people about it, once again, you are withholding information, which is coercive and a violation of a basic human right. In Mississippi, HIV education is not mandated. And here's another thing that's really important. In Mississippi, parents have to give consent for sex education. They are only one out of six states in the country to do so. That's what we call opt-in, meaning they have to actually sign a form or somehow give permission for their kids to get sex education. We know that this makes it harder than what we call opt-out education, which means that the default is that your kids will get this education unless you sign this form saying you don't want them in it because it's as opposed to opt-in where you, the parents have to do something extra. So what if that student forgets to get that permission slip signed or gets lost or the parents would have been cool with it, but now they have to sign this form, which makes it sound like maybe this is something controversial. I don't want my kids to do it. So you're making it harder for kids to even get education in a state where that education may not even be that great to begin with. And this is the last thing that I find the most horrible in the state of Mississippi. Students must be informed that there is a law in Mississippi that sodomy is outlawed and punishable by time in prison. Students must be told this, even though the Supreme Court declared laws like this unconstitutional in 2003. So for my friends in Mississippi, yeah, I understand why you have the highest rates of teen birth and the highest rates of gonorrhea and the highest rates of preterm birth. It's because y'all aren't given the information you need to keep yourself safe. And in fact, you're given information that is scary, that is inaccurate, 
and that makes you feel shameful and afraid. This is exactly why you deserve better and the amount of education you get should not depend on your zip code, but sadly right now it does. However, I'm hoping that with information like mine out there and other people on social media and different platforms, I hope that you are given the tools to know that you can get this information, even if your school district won't give it to you. So what have we learned today? I am a huge fan of IUDs as well as all birth control, and I'm confident that teenagers on birth control will not go out and hump everything that moves. And honesty and being informed is key. We see what happens in states like Mississippi and others where sex ed isn't covered or it's done poorly. And it's the teenagers who pay the price. Evidence is on our side when it comes to educating our young people. Real sex ed, and yes, access to birth control actually leads to safer sex, fewer sex partners, and the increased likelihood that they will have sex safer when they do it, and because of that, be less likely to get pregnant or get a sexually transmitted infection. These are huge wins, my friends. Birth control can absolutely be safely used in teenagers, and in fact, it often really helps with things like cramps, PMS, and heavy periods. And it's okay to not have all the answers. Just like Sarah had a great question for me, there's lots of great resources that exist out there, and I've given you a few here today. So thank you so much for this question. And if you've got more questions about birth control, sex education, how to talk to your kids about sex, know that I'm here for you and I'm ready to listen. Okay, it's that time where I ask you to rate, review, and follow on your favorite podcast app because we know that's how we get more people talking. So call in at 503-893-2016 and join me online at Dr. Jennifer Lincoln. So let's keep the conversation going, my friends. Call in, leave a question, and know that it's okay to have questions about your body and we're gonna answer them.